Well, speaking of the Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today, Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 1 through, or verse, I'm sorry, verse 11 through 22. Um, of course, the Apostle Paul wrote this book, the book of Ephesians. It was a letter to the church at Ephesus. But as he was writing these things, what we believe is that he was inspired. He was, he's writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these words come to us today, here in 2024 in Atlanta, Georgia, with authority, the same kind of authority as if the Lord himself were, were teaching these things to us. So let's hear together the word of the Lord. From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. One of the little goals that I have for 2024 is to make a book recommendation every week. People are always asking me, what are you reading? What should I read? And so I want to start doing this. I might put in my weekly email, but, but this week I just put it on Instagram and I recommended a little book by Leslie Newbegin that I know Billy Bean and I both like called Foolishness to the Greeks. Of course, I was thinking about it um, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 1 last week, but it's a great little book. It's about, it, it's about living uh, in a post-Christian age, and, and how do we think about evangelism, and how do we even think about understanding Christianity in a post-Christian age? It's a really, really helpful uh, book. But the point I'm trying to make here is Leslie Newbegin wrote the book, and I was flipping through it, and he writes this little preface, and he signed it, Leslie Newbegin, Advent 1985. And that just kind of stuck out to me. Now, you know, we don't particularly follow, uh, you know, a liturgical calendar. We, we have some liturgical aspects to our worship. But, but I, I, the, the thing that the liturgical calendar does is it's like a little reminder to Christians <laughs> that you have a whole different system. <laughs> 
You have a whole different ethic. You, you're, you're of a whole different world. He didn't say December 1985. He said Advent 1985. It's this little reminder to him that he as a Christian, it's a little reminder to us, is a part of an entirely different humanity with different values, with different ethics, with different rhythms in our lives, with a different timeline than the rest of the world has. You know, my buddy Josh Yusuf, who's sitting right here, he, uh, some, there's something really cool about Josh. He's a dual citizen. And I've always thought this was really cool. He's a citizen both of Australia and of the United States. And I've always thought that was so cool. I mean, you know, that's cool. He has two homelands. Um, but, you know, when you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, the, the same thing is true of you. You know, as soon as you trust in Christ, as soon as Jesus becomes your Lord, you gain, as it were, a kind of dual citizenship. Of course, your citizenship to the United States or wherever your citizenship is, but also as a citizen of the eternal kingdom of Christ that has a, an entirely different set of ethics, an entirely different set of values, a different way of thinking about time, a different way of thinking about money, a different way of thinking about relationships. It, it's an entirely new system. It's an entirely new kind of humanity. And, and, and the gospel, when you really begin to understand the gospel, what Jesus has done, I mean, we just sang it, right? Be thou my vision, right? Jesus, be my vision. You frame me. Give me a vision frame, Lord, for everything that is true in my life. Be thou my wisdom, be thou my security, that God would shape us and frame us. And, and, and last week, if you were here, that, that's really what it means to have a gospel-fluent life, to, to live and to think gospel, to understand that Jesus has called you out of one humanity and into a, an entirely different new humanity. And that changes everything about your life. And in particular today, it, it changes how we think about relationships. We're, we're calling this sermon, A Vision for Kingdom Family. But, but as we really understand who we are in Christ, it changes the way we relate to one another. It changes how we view one another. And Jesus is very concerned with this. I mean, I think of 1 Corinthians, or I think of John 13, where Jesus says, the way that the world will know that you're my disciples is how you relate to one another. It's how you love one another. And Paul is very concerned with this. I mean, throughout the if you've, if you've studied Paul, he's incredibly concerned with the unity of God or the unity of the church, with the bond of the saints. So vision for kingdom family, this is very important for us to think about today. And, and three ideas from the text. First, what does it mean to be alienated? Second, what does it mean to be reconciled? And third, what does it mean... <laughs> to be the dwelling place of God. It's all in the text. First, what does it mean to be alienated? You know, this idea of alienation and division, it's not too far from us. I mean, I think we get it, right? We, we live in an age of division, an increasingly tribal age, an increasingly divided age. And we have to navigate this all the time. I mean, how many times are you saying, well, we can't invite her because she's going to be there and it gets awkward with them and with them because there's division. There's some, there's some relationship that's broken down. There's some sort of tribal 
aspect going on. And, and, and what's so sad about this is so oftentimes the divides are so small and petty. You know, it, most explosive, it seems like, it's created some of this in, in really the past decade or so, is politics. You know, I have good friends. I mean, good friends. There were good friends at, at one point in their life who have not spoken to one another in eight years because one voted for Hillary Clinton and the other one voted for Donald Trump. So what is that? It's alienation. It's division. It's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Now, this, this may feel kind of new. It definitely feels intensified in our context. But division and alienation has always been around. I mean, <laughs> people dividing over race, people dividing over class, uh, people dividing over some sort of ideology. I mean, this has been around from the history of humanity, and, and it's led to the worst things. I mean, this is what's led to slavery. This is what's led to genocide. This is what's led to all sorts of, of wars and division among people. And it's certainly the context for this passage. You can't understand the passage unless you really have a glimpse of the division that existed at this time between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was wide. <laughs> they were alienated from one another. They were divided from one another. It, it, it really, it's not too much of a stretch to say. I'm not exaggerating here. It's very much like the current situation between Hamas and, and Israel. There was deep-seated hatred toward one another between the two groups. You know, William Barclay, he, he wrote this. He said, a Jew had immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel and all the nations, or of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. And I think he's referencing uh, if she was about to give birth. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt for the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. And not only were Jews and Gentiles alienated from one another, of course, the Jews believed at this time that there was no access for the Gentile to God. I mean, Paul says this in the text, no access to the promises, no access to the covenant. You, know, you can't understand Jewish worship without understanding the temple. You know, the, the temple in, in Jewish theology and, and, and thought was the place where heaven and earth came together. In fact, in the, in the holy place, the, the Holy of Holies in the temple, the Holy of Holies was, was literally seen by the Jewish people as like a little piece of heaven. It's where God was on earth, his presence on earth in the most holy place in the temple. And it was very sacred to them. I mean, the temple was, was everything in their worship. In fact, if you ever go to Jerusalem, I mean, even, to, even today, if you go to Jerusalem, one of the places you go is to the Western Wall. And at the Western Wall, Jewish people go to the Western Wall and they pray at the Western Wall. 
Now, what the Western Wall is, it's not the Western Wall of the temple. The temple has totally been destroyed. It's the Western Wall of the Temple Mount, which is this like mountain platform where the temple used to be. So just think about that. There's no temple, yet still, it tells you a little bit about Jewish theology of place, yet still people go there, Jewish people go there to be close to the presence of God. So you can imagine when the temple existed, and, and the curtain was intact, and the Holy of Holies was in place, and the presence of God was there. How sacred, and how meaningful, and how important this was. But for Gentiles, there was no access. There was no access to the temple. Gentiles could not come close to the temple. In fact, if, if a Gentile were to ever leave from the court of Gentiles, which Jewish people didn't even like the Gentiles going there, but if they were to leave from the court of Gentiles and begin to make their way up to the temple, they would immediately be put to death. In the past 150 years or so, there's been many excavations in, uh, in Jerusalem, and two of the most profound things that they've found are these stones with this inscription. Hear this. This is from the old temple. It says, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And, and you know, this seems pretty close if you studied the book of Acts. Remember, remember Acts 21? Paul is assumed, the, the people had seen Paul with a Gentile, and then later they saw him in the temple, and they assumed that Paul had taken the Gentile into the temple, and they tried to kill Paul for this. He was almost lynched, because people assumed that he had taken a Gentile up into the temple. Now, that is alienation, and that's the context that's this age. The Jews believed that the Gentiles were totally alienated from God and there was total alienation. There was an absolute barrier, if you will, between Jew and Gentile. We see it on display in this passage. And again, we see it on display in our age. And again, especially in an election year, these things can be very intense. But I want you to hear this. But this kind of division, this kind of alienation... What Paul is saying here is that it has no place in the Christian life. It should be found nowhere in the Christian life. Which gets me to the second point. What does it mean to be alienated, but what does it mean to be reconciled? Let's look at the text again together. He, he begins talking about this division that exists between them, this alienation that exists between Jew and Gentile, saying you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, right, to the covenants. The, the, the idea there is just aliens to the covenants of the promise, having no hope. But then he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The power of the gospel, the power of the blood of Christ has done something so radical that it has unified Gentile and Jew. That God in Christ has made peace, has brought unity between Gentile and Jew. Now, if this doesn't feel radical to you, this is so radical. Again, I mean, I think a great lens to think about this is the current crisis that's happening 
in Gaza right now between Hamas and Israel. What he is saying here is the power of the cross has come into all this division, into all this alienation, and God is making one new man, one unified body between these groups that were so separate, that were so divided. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall. Now, how has he done this? That's really the big question. Say, okay, if that's true, what does that mean? How has Jesus done this? And, And I'll say it this way. The only way for this to happen, and the only way for us to live into this kind of new humanity and be reconciled to one another, is to realize how Jesus has reconciled you to God. The the only way to really live, and I want you to hear this, a life of reconciliation, is to realize what Jesus has done for you if you're in Christ in terms of reconciling you to God. And this is where Christianity is so unique. And I want you to follow me here. Every worldview, except for Christianity, every worldview believes in justification by achievement. You're made right, you're justified, you're made whole by achieving something. If it's a religious worldview, it's justification by following this religious law or doing this good deed or following this sort of sacramental order. It's justification by something that you achieve. It's some sort of social uh, justification. It's, it's uh, you know, justification by this sort of social action, by kind of following out this kind of social order or pursuing social rightness in this way. If it's some sort of secular justification, right? It's justification by achievement, right? It's how much money have you made? Uh, what neighborhood do you live in? What kind of cars do you drive? Like, are you a success? Are you justified? Have you made it, as we talked about in the previous series? But, but every worldview, it follows this kind of logic, some sort of justification by achievement. And, and if that is your guiding ethic, if that is your worldview, In a a world like that, where the ethic is justification by achievement, if you are an achiever, then that worldview, by default, has to reinforce. If you are an achiever, it has to reinforce two things. Self-righteousness, which says, I'm better than you. And self-centeredness, which says, I'm more important than you. Self-righteousness, I've achieved, right? If it's religious justification, I obey the law, he didn't, I'm better than him. If it's secular justification, it's some sort of, you know, status symbol, you know, I did my homework, I got into the good college, he was playing video games, I'm better than him. We don't say that out loud, but that's, that's what happens in our mind. That's, that's, what, that's what a justification by achievement worldview produces. Self-righteousness, I'm better than you. Self-centeredness, I'm more important than you, Right? And this comes up, you know, if somebody cuts you off in traffic and you say, if he only knew who he was cutting off, you know, if he only knew who he was messing with here, if he only knew how important I am. You know, Paige always gives me a hard time. I don't have a lot of status in many things in life, but I do have some Delta status. And so whenever I, uh, you know, go to the airport, I try to, you know, go to my sky priority line and, you know, I may have a little chip on my shoulder as I do. And she always makes fun of me. She's well, look at you, Mr. Medallion, you know. <laughs> so if, you, if your guiding principle is justification by achievement and you're an achiever, it will produce self-righteousness, I'm better than you, 
Self-centeredness, I'm more important than you. Now, if you're not an achiever, if you haven't lived up to what the justification by achievement world around you is saying, then it will produce self-pity or bitterness. Self-pity, I'm a loser. Nobody likes me. I can't do anything right. Or bitterness is my mom's fault. It was my teacher's fault. If only I, it's, it's you know, or at a national level, it's the Republicans' fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's cable news' fault. It's the mainstream media's fault, right? If we don't feel like we're achieving, we kind of either go into this self-pity, woe is me, the sky is falling, or bitterness. It's all their fault. Justification by achievement. If you are achiever, it produces self-righteousness or self-centeredness. And if you're not an achiever, it produces self-pity or bitterness. If this is true, if this is the guiding ethic of our age, and I believe that it is, how could we not be divided? It's kind of a wonder that we're as united as we are. (laughs) If everybody's self-centered and everybody's self-righteous and everybody's self-pitying and everybody's bitter, how could we be anything but separated from one another? You know, it's Martin Luther King weekend. And of course, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. And on Martin Luther King Day, we, of course, we celebrate the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. But we, we, we celebrate really something more than that. We're celebrating this idea of unity, and particularly racial unity in America. You know, Martin Luther King, he has, of course, many famous things, but maybe his most famous line is, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, in the 60 years since Martin Luther King Jr. gave that speech, we've come a long way, I believe, in terms of racial relations. We have, certainly have a long way to go. But of course, in the 60 years since he's given that speech, while we've come a long way, I believe, in racial relations, we've lost a common vision of character. So maybe people are judging people more and more by the content of their character and less and less by the color of their skin. The problem is we just don't have a vision of what good character is anymore. And so this side holds up this person and says, oh, this is our hero. And these people say, but he's the villain. This side says he has good character. This side, he says he's the worst person ever. The point I'm trying to make here, we're prone to division. If it's not... <laughs> Race, it's politics. If it's not money, it's school choice. (laughs) If it's not this, it's that. Which is why what Paul is saying here is so radical. As Christians, we don't judge one another by race or class or how much money someone has or any other achievement. We don't even judge one another. I want you to hear this. We don't even judge one another by our perception of what their character is. Now, the question becomes, how? (laughs) How do we do that? How do we break away from lenses like that? How do we break away If you understand your own justification as justification by achievement, you'll always look down on others. You'll always be separated from others. But I want you to hear this. 
if you truly see yourself as justified, not by achievement, but justified by grace alone, that changes everything. If you see yourself as only justified by the grace of God, that pushes you away from self-centeredness and self-righteousness. I mean, if you see yourself as only justified by the grace of God and not by your righteousness, I mean, to be a Christian, you have to admit that you're not righteous. I mean, how could you be prone to self-righteousness? The, 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 the gateway to Christianity is to say, I am a sinner. I'm ruined by my sin before God. I am not righteous. I am dependent on God's grace. And so if you're really a Christian, if you really see yourself as justified by the grace of God, then it pushes you away. The gospel is always pushing you away from self-righteousness. And it's always pushing you away from self-centeredness. Right? If God is your hope, and God is your source, and God is your wisdom, and God is your strength, then how could you be self-centered? <laughs> True Christianity pushes you toward God-centeredness, not self-centeredness. If you're justified by grace, it pushes you away from self-pity. Woe is me. Nobody loves you. Because if you're really justified by grace, then you believe that the God who created this entire universe loves you with a great affection. If you are really justified by grace, then that pushes you away from bitterness. Because if God, through Christ, has forgiven you, then even though, yes, you've endured pains and wrongs, don't you see that Jesus identifies with you in that? And don't you see that you're called to forgive one another? If you're justified by grace, it pushes you away from all of these things. You know, Tim Keller made this phrase famous, but I, I learned in the recent biography that it was actually Jack Miller who first said it. But I love it. It says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And if that is true, if you believe that, if you believe that that is true, if you believe the gospel, it will totally change the way you see yourself and thereby it will change the way you see others. You see, as Christians, we don't judge one another by race or class or how much money someone has or whatever achievement they had. We don't even judge others by our approval of their character. We look at one another by who we are in the eyes of God. We look at one another through the lens of the cross. And this will radically change your relationships. You know, Kristen Getty, she rewrote, this has been 15 years ago, maybe more. She rewrote this old song, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And I love one of the lines that she inserted. It says this, beneath the cross of Jesus, so when you, when you really see yourself as someone who says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling, right? when, when, you, when you see your, your base identity as someone who stands beneath the cross of Jesus, looking to the cross for your hope and your life, when you see yourself as someone beneath the cross of Jesus, beneath the cross of Jesus, here's what she says, his family is my own. 
Once strangers chasing our own selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. Look at verse 14. For he himself, this is the key. What is your peace? Is it an achievement? (laughs) Are you finding peace in self-pity or bitterness? Or is he your peace? He himself is our peace. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands. He's, he's abolished you know, all of these things we think that we have to do to make ourselves right before God. Jesus has completed all of that. We are resting in his righteousness. And if we're trusting in him, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And of course, Jesus doesn't make one new man in place of the two. He has called people to himself. He's making one new man from every tribe and tongue and nation. So making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, technically, we're still in point number two. Talk about what is alienation, what is reconciliation. But I want to make some points here. I want to be really practical with this one. Like, what does this mean? And there's so much I could say. There's a thousand things I could say. There's a thousand things it means. This is why you need to be in community groups. This is why you need Christian friends. You need to be working this out. But three things. First of all, it means this. Christians work hard to be reconciled to one another. Christians work hard to be reconciled to one another. Have you been wounded? Has someone made you angry? Has a relationship been broken? If, if, if Christ is making peace in his cross, we work hard to be reconciled. Here's the deal, guys. There's going to be division. We live in the world. There's going to be misunderstanding. There's going to be wounds. You know, we're going to get confused as to which kingdom is most important sometimes. And I'm not saying that there's not times for us to correct one another and call one another out. Of course, that's, that's part of this. There's not time to, there's not, there's certainly times to correct one another's theology and doctrine and all sorts of things, but we work hard to be reconciled. We work hard to, to maintain the bond of peace in love and in unity. You know, I was talking to a friend this week, very confident person, and we were talking about a relationship that needed to be mended. And this person, I mean, again, you know, I feel like I could have been talking to myself here. I, I've done the same thing. They, they said, well, I'll go, I'll go talk to him. And I said, hey, hey, reconciliation is not just about you easing your conscience for your sake. It's about actually considering the other person and pursuing unity with them in love. And so how you pursue them and how you pursue reconciliation is important. <laughs> you know, and I think that it's easy for us to confuse giving our conscience ease well, hey, I tried. <laughs> he, he's impossible. You know, I did what I had to do with actually pursuing reconciliation and love. But Christians work hard to pursue reconciliation. And this is, gets to point number two. Number two, Christians are considerate. Christians are considerate. And we're especially considerate to those in the household of faith. I have something in mind here, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You know, 2024 is an election year. And there's a lot of complex political issues. And if you say, well, that, you know, if you look at every political issue as 
easy, you're either proud or stupid, right? There's a lot of complex political issues, okay? And I'm not saying there's not right and wrong within those, and I'm not saying there's not good positions, but, but every one of those is complex, and there's layers. And so when we talk to one another about these things, we're considerate of the other person. You know, Christians aren't the kind of people that like to just stir stuff up for the sake of it. We don't just throw out straw man arguments so that it's easy for us to defend our side. We're not snarky <laughs> trying to get a rise out of other people, especially to those people in the household of faith. We're considerate. We're considerate. I'm, and again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be involved in politics. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have deep political convictions. I mean, I think that we should. I think that's a proper outworking of our faith. But as we're working those things out together, we're considerate of one another and where, where we're coming from in these complex issues. Number three, Christians join churches and seek to be good members. I, I want to say this in love, and I don't know who I'm talking to here today, but there is no churchless Christianity you know, and I'm not saying you have to join this church, but I, I talk to people from time to time, and I, look, some of you, I know you experienced some church wounds. Let me tell you, so have I. I, I genuinely have. I, I mean, still, you know, we talk about bitterness. There are still some things that come up from time to time that like stir this old wound in my heart. You know, I'm still being healed all the time because in the wounds that, that I've received in, in, in my life. But there's, there's no such thing as, as churches of Christianity. We're called to one another. That's what Jesus has called us to. People will say, well, I follow Jesus, but I just kind of do my own thing. Well, then you're not really following Jesus. Jesus has necessarily called you into a kingdom family, into a community where we work these things out. We see this throughout the entire New Testament. And I just want you to hear this. There's no perfect church. This is not a perfect church. There's no perfect church. And actually, I would even go so far to say is that maybe the burden you have he said, well, I think this church needs to be more concerned about this. Okay, great. Maybe that's God saying, join that church and start talking about that. There's no perfect church. One of the reasons we need you. And I would also say that, hey, they break it to you, but you're not perfect either, which is why you need us. And that's actually how the body grows. This is the vision of Ephesians 4, that we speak truth to one another, truth to one another in love, because we love one another, we consider one another, and that's how the whole thing works. That's how the whole body matures. And that's how, and we get to verse 17 here, that's actually how the church continues. That's how Jesus continues to preach his peace. It's interesting, Paul says he preached peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. Jesus never went to Ephesus. What is Paul saying here? He's saying Jesus is preaching still through his people. And that, of course, leads me to the final point. What does it mean to be the dwelling place of God? I wish I had more time for this point. One of the most dramatic things that Jesus said in his life, the temple, I talked about it earlier, there's no way to understand the world that Jesus lived in without understanding how sacred and amazing the temple was. And rightly so. You know, I've gotten to travel a little bit in the ancient world. I've been to Athens. I've been to Baalbek. I've been to Palmyra. I've seen the sites of the ancient temples. And every 
Scholar of antiquities will tell you there was nothing greater in the ancient world than the temple that was in Jerusalem, Herod's temple. If you read the Old Testament, it's a major theme. Then, of course, Herod built this amazing temple, this place that was a sign of God's glory on earth. It was rightly glorious. And Jesus said in front of these people that were so proud of their temple, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. And they were furious. How could they not have been furious? I mean, they'd given their whole lives to this temple. This temple was God's sign of blessing upon them. And yet, when Jesus died, what happened? The curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when Jesus was raised, this new temple was born. And the temple that Jesus has built is not a temple made up of stones put together by builders and architects. It is a living temple. I want you to hear this. The place now where the spirit of God dwells is in you. Do you see yourself like that? You are the dwelling place of God. It's no longer this temple that's built with stones. No, Jesus says, I am the chief cornerstone and I am building this living structure. I'm going to display my glory, the glory of God, the beauty of God is going to be known now, not through some static building, glorious as it was in Jerusalem that once existed. No, the beauty of God now will be on display in every place and every time through God's beautiful people. As we live out, as, as, as this gospel truth penetrates our heart, do you see how important your life is? Oh, I hope that you do. I, uh, my college, one of my college mentors died last week. It was a guy named Peter Doyle. And uh, he impacted a lot of guys in Auburn. Um, he's just a great guy. He was 93. I mean, it's, it's happy. It's, it's a happy death. He, his wife actually died about a month ago. And then he died. And it's kind of perfect, you know. They're in, we're with the Lord together. And I was just, I went to a service yesterday. <laughs> Sorry. And I was just thinking about, um, I would meet with him. He was in his 70s then. He was old then. And uh, it was a time in my life where my faith was not very strong. I was discouraged. And Dr. Doyle, he had this way. He was a great pastor. And he had this way about seeing God in me. And that's what he would do. I was just a little kid, just 21 years old. And uh, he, he, would just, he made me believe that the God who created the whole world was at work in my life, invisible through my life. And that was amazing to me. And as he did that, it helped me to be able to see that in other people. It helped me to say, wow, man, look at what God's doing in this person. And look at what God's doing in that person. And I'm not perfect at being able to do this, but when you start to see people like that, when you start to see people as living stones, 
in the household of God that God is displaying his glory through, it'll make you more patient with him. It'll make you more compassionate. It'll give you hope for what God is doing. Not that they're necessarily perfect where they are, but it'll give you hope that God actually has a plan for this person. That's what creates, a, that's, that's what creates kingdom family. We're a family. We're related. Not by blood, not by nationality, not even by tons of common interests, but we're related by the spirit of God at work in each of our lives. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see this and ears to hear this. As we meditate on this passage and on what was just said, I just pray that the Spirit of God would be at work There may be someone that there is a division, there's disunity, there's a wound. You're allowing bitterness or self-pity to creep in. Maybe the Lord has convicted you of self-righteousness in some way. I just pray that the Spirit would do his work in our hearts now. And I invite you right now, just as we have our heads bowed and as we're about to worship, just to commit to the Lord, to allow the convicting work of the Spirit to heal your heart, change you, bring you into fellowship with God through Christ, who's loved you, who's given himself for you, who's taken on all of your burdens and sin, all of your self-centeredness, all of your bitterness, he's taken it on. It's been nailed to the cross. And he comes to you over and over again with grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. May this ethic, this kingdom life be what rules us. Lord, do this work, please. Do it in my heart. Do it in our hearts. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Lord, make one new man unify us Lord in this divided age bring reconciliation and peace make us considerate and patient loving toward one another Jesus you are our peace you're our only peace and Father we find peace now as we come to the foot of the cross I pray all this in Jesus' name.